This is episode 518 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. We as believers are dual citizens and live in two kingdoms. We have a temporal citizenship in this world, but more importantly, we are citizens of the kingdom of God, citizens of his eternal kingdom that has no equal. And both kingdoms have rules and they make demands and the kingdoms pull us in opposite directions. For example, in this kingdom, we try to find our success and happiness by doing what the world rewards. We work to make money and then more money so that we can buy worthless stuff. We want people to like us so we become like them and like what they like just to be accepted. And if we're not happy, we will move heaven and earth to change things and rearrange our reality in a vain attempt to make us happy. Unfortunately, this is how many believers live their allotted days in this life, chasing after trinkets and toys and things that pass away in time, but not for those who have a desire for the higher Christian life. They live on an entirely different plane and experience joy and peace in ways the world cannot even begin to understand. Does it sound appealing? I thought it might. So join us today as we discover how to experience the higher Christian life and learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Hey, before I begin sharing this with you today, I need to tell you a story. Um, Part of our problem, part of my problem, let me just make it personal, part of my problem with trusting God with everything is the fact that I have a tendency of not realizing how truly big he is and how magnanimous he is and how he can do anything he wants to do at any particular point in time, no matter my unbelief or my belief or or whatever. And um, when bad things happen, we have a tendency, I have a tendency of falling back on how I want to manage this. I start thinking about possible scenarios and contingencies. And if this happens, here's what I can do to mitigate this. And oh, I'll ask God to bless it or I'll pray and ask for wisdom. But I spend most of my time, you may be totally different, spend most of my time figuring out how to handle the catastrophe rather than just trusting him. So Friday, uh, I had this uh, cardiology appointment and I didn't want to go. I've already canceled it once, but I went anyway because if my kids found out about it, they would insist that I go. And, and it was one of those deals where they, I don't know, take the sonogram thing and, you know, do your arteries and all that kind of stuff. And my doctor says it was free because I'm over 65. I'm a white male that uh, has smoked in the past. And so therefore I get this free. And all right. So I go to the car- cardiologist. The nurse is there. I'm laying down on this table. She puts goo on my stomach like you ladies that have had babies know what that's like. Goo on my stomach and she's doing this kind of stuff. And we enter into a conversation. She sees the what would Jesus do bracelet. Uh, she asked me what church I went to. I explained, uh, you know, that I was a pastor here. I asked about her church. And she said that her husband was an associate pastor at some church in Charlotte, a Baptist church in Charlotte. I don't really remember the name. And, and so the conversation veered that way. Really? did he always want to be a pastor? And she goes, no. And the last thing I wanted to be was a pastor's wife. And she goes, I can't tell you. She says, it makes me want to cry just thinking about how far God has taken me. And I could tell by what 
she was sharing that he, she probably had somewhat of a checkered past before God got hold of her. And so I said, well, how long has he been an associate pastor there? Well, uh, for 10 years. I said, well, how did that happen? What was this calling like? And she goes, you really want to know? And I said, yes. And she goes, all right, I'll give you the short story. He, uh, he was working for um, a large uh, LP gas company. Uh, he was taking classes at Belmont Abbey, paid for by the company in order to uh, management classes, in order to you know, increase his value to the company. And somebody made an accusation against him. She says it was bogus, but it was pretty serious. And the company decided rather than fight the allegation, rather for what the bad press was, I didn't ask her what the allegation was, it really didn't matter, that uh, they were just gonna fire him. And so uh, he had been there for years and years and years, and all of a sudden, on a Friday, he lost his job. He picked up the phone and he called her and said, hey, I just got fired today. And she was devastated because he didn't tell her the rest of the story and didn't tell her until they got home. What had happened is the week before he was fired, he was going to a men's conference. And on the Saturday before he was let go of his job on Friday, during the men's conference, he felt a call in his life to ministry. But there's no way I can go into ministry because I have a wife here. They've been praying for a child for 12 years um, and God hadn't given them a baby yet. He has since answered that with, with two wonderful kids. And so he said, I offered up a three-second prayer, just a three-second prayer. And I said, God, if you want me in the ministry, you're going to have to get me fired from my job. On Friday, the next Friday, he got fired. And so the following week, they had the big meeting with uh, the HR department, and they were going to tell him exactly you know, what they were going to do and all this kind of stuff. And when he went to the meeting, there were two security guards there. And uh, he, she said he's a really big man. And so the security guards were there thinking he was going to get angry and flip tables or whatever it was. And so the, the HR lady sat there and told him they're, gonna, they're letting him go and here's why and, and all that kind of stuff. And he started laughing. And she said, I don't think this is a very funny matter. And he said, that's because you don't see it from my vantage point. And he told her the story about the prayer, about the change of, of life. He shared Christ with her. She got highly offended and she got up and the other bosses that were there and they left and they said, we'll be back in, in a, a few minutes. And when they came back, they offered him a year's severance package to keep his insurance for an entire year and to continue paying for his schooling until he got a degree, which he obviously switched to uh, ministry and theology and something of that nature. What could have been an absolute disaster turned out to be something that she shared with me. And I can't tell you, as I was leaving with the goo on my chest, as I was leaving and went out to the, the car, uh, I'll... I, I mean, I just thank the Lord and praise the Lord for the testimony that she had sharing to me about people I'll probably never see again and I've never met him that talked about how big and magnanimous and powerful and like the song we sang, how mighty our God is. And he is. And part of understanding this higher Christian life is realizing and appropriating and living by how powerful our God is. Amen? Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you for how really incredible you are 
and how you've chosen to live within us and use us and have a relationship with us and stick to us closer than a brother and allow us bold access into your throne, knowing that Jesus is our advocate, that Jesus takes our request to you. God, we're the most blessed people on the planet. And I know in my life and in the life of many Christians that I know, we live in constant defeat with just a few victories rather than relishing in our victories that you've already provided for us. Father, would you encourage us today? Would you give us a deep desire for more of you? And would you begin that process, if you haven't already, of letting these blinders fall from our eyes by only seeing what is real to us today rather than the spiritual realm, the true reality that lasts forever. Father, in Jesus' name, would you bind and rebuke Satan? Would you fill us, Holy Spirit, with yourself? And would you magnify Christ and the Father through what we look at today? And I will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been talking about the higher Christian life. And I want to take just a moment and I want to just basically share some stuff that we should all know. First truth is the fact that uh, there is a God. Would you agree? There is some God, some being, some entity, something beyond our comprehension that slung the universe into existence, that created us, that decided that in his creation he would give us a mind and an ability to even comprehend a little of what he is like, that he has provided for us his word. He has revealed himself to us. Because without his revelation to us of who he is, we would be clueless. Because there is none that seeks after God. There is none righteous, Paul says in Romans. No, not one. But yet, in those people who by nature are alienated from God and unable to have a relationship with him, he has chosen us for no other reason than his good pleasure to reveal himself to us. If anything, that should make you rejoice. In the Old Testament, when God revealed himself to his people, he basically made them travel to where he was. It was Mount Sinai. He was there. It was frightening, and he left. It was the tabernacle that went with the people. He was there. It was frightening, and he left. When the, when the glory was gone, they knew to move. When the glory came, they stayed. He spoke through Moses and others, but never had a personal relationship with anybody. Never. And there's a reason why. And I really discovered this this week as I was uh, reading in the book of Deuteronomy. You know, when God set up his economy, God was moving into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy, Moses is recounting what the 40 years were like in these three messages. And he talked about the fact that all the tribes got a portion in the land. Do you remember that? So they were earthbound. They got a portion. Here's your portion. So therefore, this is your 40 acres. This is your home. You have to till the land. You have to take care of your crops. You have to fend for yourself. You have to fight off the, the enemy that comes around. I will be there with you. But nevertheless, there's going to be problems. You're going to have to hire attorneys if people try to defraud you. You're going to have to dig weeds and stumps out of the ground. You're going to have to suffer through drought. You're going to have to suffer through um, windstorms, your cattle is going to die. It's just going to be a rough life for you. But I've given you a land, I've given you a portion, and it's your job to take care of your needs. And we would go, 
praise God. That's great. I, I have a, I'm able to build my empire. I'm able to build a business. I'm able to build a name for myself. I've got a portion of land and I'm going to put my effort into it and I'm going to get old and broken down while I'm doing it and I'm going to leave it to my kids and maybe my kids will, will be nourished on the land, but nothing lasts forever. Matter of fact, none of those family members who had the land given to them when they crossed over from the, uh, the wilderness have possession of that today. But then God said, there's one tribe I'm going to treat different, and that's the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi will not have a portion in the land. Their portion, their inheritance, do you remember, will be me. I will be their portion. And their entire life will be devoted to serving me. They'll be able to get closer to me than all the other tribes. They'll be able to handle the holy utensils and they'll be able to build the, uh, the tabernacle and tear it down and move it. They'll be able to do all that kind of stuff because they're going to be surrounded and be focused on me. And since they don't have a portion in the land and since they don't have to fend for themselves and make their way in this world, what I'm going to do is I'm going to provide food for them I'm going to provide cities for them so that they can live. I'm going to give them a job to do. I'm going to give their life meaning and purpose. I'm going to take care of every one of their needs because all they have to do is serve me. And it dawned on me as I was reading Matthew, uh, reading the Sermon on the Mount, actually, that Jesus is telling us, like in Matthew 6, 33, that we're to function like the tribe of Levi. If you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, not building your own land and working really hard to take care of your needs, if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then I will take care of everything else in your life. You remember? And the story I just shared with you is a classic perfect example of how God sees a bigger picture and what seemed evil to us really turned out to be a blessing because it was filtered through God's sovereignty. We serve a mighty God, but our God doesn't, uh, doesn't make us travel to meet him like an impersonal God. Instead, he's personal to us, he talks to us, he communicates to us, he gives us his word, he instructs us, he sticks closer to us than a brother, he allows us or he calls us friends. He says that he desires greatly that we will be with him in heaven to see him in his glory. Read John 17. That all we have to do is rest and trust and abide in him stay connected to his power source, and then he, everything good in us, he will provide by allowing us to bear much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Do you remember that in John 15? And not only that, but he goes one step further and decides that instead of living outside of you, that he will actually live inside of you, unheard of, inside of you. I don't have to go where God is. He's with me all the time. It's not like I'm walking with God or behind God or next to God or in my situation, ahead of God. I am I'm walking or God is in me and I am in him. 
that I exist in him and he lives in me in the person of the Holy Spirit. There's no greater blessing possible to anyone than knowing God lives in you. And if so, what does that mean? Well, why would I want to take matters into my own hands? Within me is the God in the person of the Holy Spirit who has infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge and infinite power who lives in me and desires to have a relationship with me and wants to direct my path, wants to clear the, the, the way for me, wants to stay closer than a brother, wants to fill me and let me move in his power and in his gifting. Why in the world would I seek anything other than him? Yet I do. And what happens? Probably what happens to you. Oh, Lord, I'm trusting you in everything. This is really great. Oh, there's a problem coming up. I don't know what to do, but I don't think you're big enough to handle it, so I'll handle it myself. And oh, we know how this happens. God, please help me, redeem me, save me, just restore me. And oh, he does. And I promise I'll never be like that again. I'll still be so much better. Oh, but I am, and I'm up, and I'm down, and I'm up, and I'm down, and I'm in, and I'm out. And then we talk about this abundant life in Christ that we're not experiencing. The church pretty much doesn't experience it. That's why most of us are six, sevens, and eights rather than tens or twelves or fifteens. And so do we have this natural bent for evangelism? Well, not really, because Christianity works for the sweet by and by. I believe about heaven and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't really work today because I don't allow it. Because I'm, I'm so quick, Bill Bright used to say this, I'm so quick to have the throne and put Christ on the center of the throne in my life until something comes up that I want to happen my way or that I don't trust him at. So I bump him off the throne and I sit on the throne, mess it up something fierce, and then, all right, God, you get back on the throne. He takes care of it. And the next thing we're doing, I'm bumping him off the throne again. Have you ever done that? It's kind of like the history of Christianity. You know, I'll trust you with these things, Lord, but I'm not going to trust you with my pride or I'm not going to trust you with my finances. I'm not going to trust you with my family relationships. I'm not going to trust you with my future. I'm not going to trust you with those things because I'm calling those shots myself. But he gives us so many promises. I mean, if you will trust, you, you want a faith exercise? Start in Matthew and start looking at every promise that Jesus gives you. Just, just, we'll just do it, do it in the Sermon on the Mount. Every promise in those three chapters. And believe they're true and then live by them and your life will be radically changed. Everything you struggle with is found in those three chapters. Everything, forgiveness, broken relationship, how you spend your money, worry, doubt, fear from persecution, fear from lack, everything that we struggle with is found in those three chapters. And he makes incredible promises to us that if we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is shocking the potential, the potential of what our lives could be like. Now unto him who is able, and I might add willing to do, abundantly, exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think according to the power that lives in us, which happens to be the Holy Spirit, and in the church through all generations. Do you remember? Now to him in Jude who can keep you from stumbling. 
and present you faultless with great joy. I mean, the potential is overwhelming. And that's why we're spending so much time on this higher Christian life. Let me tell you what's happening. Um, slowly, but nevertheless, it is happening. I get an email or I'll get a phone call or something where one by one, people are getting it. You know, you're right. You're right. I mean, to quote St. Dr. Phil, you know, if what I'm doing ain't working, why am I keep doing it? And you know, it, it, it's true. I, I yielded this part of my life to the Lord, and it's incredible. And, and I've surrendered this part of my life to the Lord, and it's fantastic. And why didn't I see this before? One by one, little by little, people are getting it. And even if you are getting it, the real crux is the desire to let go and let him have control. One of my spiritual heroes was a man named Jim Elliott. Anybody remember him? He was a uh, very, he was like one of the who's who of college at that time in Wheaton College. Him and a couple other people could have done anything he wanted, but instead he felt called into the mission field. And as you know, he lost his life as a uh, young man there for what many would say was a wasted life. His, his wife, Elizabeth, of course, is the one that wrote all about that. And, and he wrote in his journal, prior to him even going to the mission field, this famous quote. He wrote it on October 28, 1949. He was examining his life. He was basically debating whether or not to embrace what we're calling the higher Christian life or just be like everybody else, have a religion you got a little spirituality in what you do and just be from the tribe of Judah rather than be from the tribe of Levi and surrender all of it to him. And here's what he said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. By the way, everything that you and I are holding on to that we refuse to give to him, we will someday lose anyway. Your money, your family, your friends, your house, your prestige, your place of employment, how famous you are, it doesn't matter. Everything that we hold on to today that we don't give to him, you will lose anyway. And it, as you get older like I am, it's like, yeah, all the people that, you know, that we knew growing up that were famous are all dying like, like people die. And it's like, it, it doesn't really matter. There has to be something more to that. And that's what the higher Christian life is all about. I hope you're in Philippians chapter three. I wanna share just a couple passages with you. In, well, see if I can say this the right way. Um, when I understood the sovereignty of God and that it's not me, the narcissistic one in control that does all the choosing, I will consider the claims of Christ and I'll decide to make him Lord of my life. Oh, how ridiculous is that when you really study the scripture that the fact that I even have a desire for him comes from him. When the blinders came off and I begin to see things clearly, and I've shared the story with you how that happened, that it seems like almost every passage of the Bible spoke of God's sovereignty, spoke of my, me having no sovereignty, but him having total sovereignty. It's the same thing with this higher Christian life. 
that every time you look at the standard and the blessings that he's called us to be and where we are right now because we're still holding on to what we want to do and the difference, the gulf between those two, it's almost like every passage points us to something deeper in a relationship with him than most of the church is experiencing it today. I'm reading the book of Philippians and I I'm arrested at chapter one, verse 21, which dealt with the song that we started with. For me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We interpret it, of course, talking about his physical death, but harder than a physical death. By the way, a physical death, a martyrdom is just a, an impulse decision that you make one time. Living for Christ day in and day out is a decision that you'll make every single day, possibly every single hour. And so to live... To live for me, to live is Christ. It's not better with Christ. It's not more helpful with Christ. To live is Christ and to die to myself. Carry my cross and die to myself is gain, is profit, is an, is, is an advantage. It makes my life worthwhile. He amplifies that in chapter 3. And he starts talking about the stuff that he held on to that he got confidence in. What you're holding on to and take confidence in may be something else. He was holding on to his heritage, to his religious heritage, that we are the circumcision of the Jews and, and I, I, you know, I have this, this lineage and I'm, I'm perfect when it comes to following the law and I was raised under this particular tribe and I was trained by Gamaliel and I was the, you know, I, 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 when it came to Jews, I was more zealous than anybody else. And so that defined me in my religion and my relationship with God. You may find that what you're most confident in is your education or your family, or your job, or your charisma, or your gifts, or your money, or the blessings that God has given you, or the possessions that you have, or whatever it is. So what Paul was dealing with was specific to Paul. Yours may be different, but look what he says here, verse 1. It says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Strange. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious or grievous, but for you it is safe. But beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. These are Jews who are trying to rob them of their freedom. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoicing in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in my business, no confidence in my family, no confidence in my relationship with other people, no confidence in my natural Charisma, no confidence in anything, zero confidence in the flesh. But Paul says, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I'm more proud, more arrogant, more confident who I am than you are with you because I'm a better person than you when we're looking at it from a Jewish standpoint. I was circumcised, verse 5, on the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, I was blameless. But, the contrast, but, what things were gained to me? what I valued as most important in my life, 
what I rely on on a rainy day. Again, my job, my business, my education, my profession, my possessions, my natural abilities, my skills, my potential, whatever it is, whatever I feel good about, whatever makes me who I am, whatever things were gain to me, whatever things were profitable to me, were an advantage to me, whatever things I hold on to as my life preserver when things go bad, these Whatever they are in your life, they're all transitory. They don't last forever. These I have counted or considered or I have reckoned or I live as such a loss. They're gain to me, but nevertheless, I'm not going to live in them. Instead, I'm going to consider them. I'm going to live in such a way as I view them as a loss. And that loss here means damage, injury. It means coming from a state of plenty or health to a state of absolute disaster. Why? Why would you do that, Paul? Why would you tell someone who makes a million dollars a year or tell someone who's incredibly gifted, why would you tell Keith Green, for example, whose whole ministry is tied up in the way he you know, plays and sings that that's a gain to him and he's going to consider it lost and give it back to Christ? Why would you do that, Paul? Well, I'm not doing it for the praise of men. I'm not doing it because there's some sort of transaction to take place. I'm doing that for no other reason than Christ. Because let me tell you, Jesus lived in a dependent relationship with the Father. I hate that. I hate being dependent on anyone. Because in my way I was raised, if you're dependent on someone, that's a sign of weakness. It's okay if other people are dependent upon you. That's a sign of great blessing to help other people. But if you're dependent, then that's a sign of weakness. Nobody wants to be dependent. Nobody wants to be 80 years old and relying on somebody else to take care of them. Nobody wants to be in a wheelchair that can't feed themselves. Nobody wants to have no money. And the fact is that somebody has to give something to them in order to, to make them sorry. Nobody wants to live in a dependent relationship. Yet that is the exact relationship that God wants us to live in with him. It's exactly the relationship Christ lived in with him. The words that I speak, they're not my words, but the words that come from the Father. You've seen the Father, you've seen me. I, I come down on earth not to do my will, but to do the will of the Father who sent me. I'm basically just a servant or a slave of him. And we are supposed to be servants and slaves of him also, bond slaves, voluntary slaves of God the Father. I own no possessions because they all belong to him. I don't have to worry. I, I don't get my, my attaboys from the world here, yes, I made a whole bunch of money in the stock market, and hey, I sold this company over here and made a lot of money, or look at this I bought and that I bought, and all these people I've hired, and look at me, look at me, look at me, that our whole culture lives on. That's the benefit of capitalism. No, it, it doesn't work that way at all, because our attaboys should come from him. Because everything we possess, we will lose when we die. There is zero long-term value in everything, even our relationships with our children. 
I mean, as much as we foster those and as, as good and godly as they are, the fact is, I will die, my kids will die, my grandkids will die, their kids would die, will die, assuming Christ doesn't come back. I mean, I think, about, I think about the most important man in my life, which is my grandfather. Um, he was the father I didn't have. He's the one I always looked to. I wanted to be like him. You know, other than a couple of us that are um, uh, older, in our 60s and older, my kids don't even know him. I mean, and as soon as we pass away, there'll be nobody that knew my grandfather. And you'll see these old pictures that can't really relate to him, and the pictures get stuck in a box, they get stuck in, get stuck in an attic, and years go by and they get destroyed. It doesn't matter. Because everything, everything passes away except your relationship and what God does through you as you rest and abide in him. But what things were gained to me, what things that I lined my life out, what things that identified me and defined me as a person, I've counted these lost, totally lost for Christ. But you know what? It gets even deeper than that because Paul has even a stronger relationship to be zealous for Jesus like he was zealous against Jesus before he came to know him. Yet indeed, I count, I reckon, I live as all things are lost. Why? For Christ? No, there's a deeper intimacy with Christ. It's not just salvation, but I want to know the excellence, the over and abundance, the the surpassing beyond the comprehension knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to know him. I want to know who he is and how he thinks. I want to be so connected to him that when he breathes and speaks to me, I can feel the heat of his breath on my face. I want to open up his word and have it jump out to me as something that is living and active. I want to pray. And when I pray, I want to connect with God. So I'm boldly walking through the, into the holy of holies and communing with God Almighty. Is that possible? Yes. Is it expected? Yes. Do many of us experience it? No because we're so intertwined with this world that we give God lip service. Well, if I surrender my life to God, he's probably going to take away some of the things that I really enjoy. Maybe, maybe. But are you going to enjoy those from the grave? You're going to enjoy those from all eternity? This is such a little blip on our life for all eternity, this time on earth, and yet it has absolute profound found eternal consequences. But what things were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, to know Christ, to know him. One of the problems the church faces today, many of you may face it too, I know I struggle with it, is the fact that our knowledge of Christ is superficial. He's still the flannel graph Jesus. He's still the puppet Jesus. He's still the, Jesus, the cartoon Jesus on, on the videos that we watch. He, he's not king of kings and lord of lords. 
And even if he is king of kings and lord of lords, I'm not going to make him king of kings and lord of lords in my life today. He can be king of kings and lord and lords when I get to heaven, where I reap all the benefits. But here, I'm reaping all the benefits, and I'm only going to use him as a genie in a bottle to help me do what I want to do is I run my life my way rather than just trusting him. Do we know him? I'm going to show you a short video here. You may have seen this on the internet. It's been around for a long time. But every time I watch it, it's profound. And it shows me who this Jesus really is. Do you know him this way? Do you know him as the mighty God which he is? Watch this. The Bible says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the weak. I wonder if you know him. He's a key for knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his word is lighter. Without him, well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't 
Do you know him like that? No, I just, I, I just know him as, you know, the, the parables and the Bible stories, and that's who he is. And beyond that, and what he's asking us to do is walk with him or let him walk through us in this world. And his blessings are incomprehensible. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Indeed, I have counted, I've reckoned, I live as such. All things are lost for the excellence, the surpassing greatness, the overwhelming joy of knowing Christ my Lord, for whom, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? Why would you do that? Well, well, well if if I give my life to Jesus, won't I miss the things I'm giving up? Do you miss rubbish? Do you miss garbage? The word literally means dung. It means things that are given to an animal. It means human and animal estreatment. Is that, did you miss that? I don't. But if we hold on to those things with such passion because they're so important to us, from his perspective, from God's perspective, they are nothing. Why would you do that? What's the payoff? What's the promise? If I surrender everything to Christ, what does Christ do for me? Watch. The number one, I may gain Christ. Now, we're not talking about just salvation. We're talking about this intimate, passionate, powerful working of the Holy Spirit in you that gives our life purpose and meaning that I may gain Christ. Number two, not only gain Christ, but I'll be found in him. I'll be located in him. When people look for me, when the angels want to know where I am, when God says, where is Steve? He is in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own, not having all the stuff that I've done and I've held on to and the things that make me special, which is from the law, and that which is but a righteousness that is through faith in Christ, namely the righteousness which comes from God only by faith. Well, if I try to embrace this deeper spiritual life, or if I try to regain the ground that I have sacrificed to my flesh and to the enemy and try to live at least as close to him as I once was 15 years ago, I know I'm not going to be able to hold on to my own. Exactly. It's all done by faith in Christ. And that I may know him. That's gnosko that I will know him experientially. But I'll not just know him as a historical figure. I'll not know him as somebody out there who is Jesus to you. Well, he is my Lord and Savior. Okay. Well, Satan knows he's the Lord and Savior. But do you know him? Do you know him personally and passionately? Do you know how he thinks? Do you have the mind of Christ? Do you know what grieves him and what doesn't grieve him? Have you felt his pleasure? Have you felt his chastisement? Have you felt his reconciliation? 
Is it still in the head or is it embracing every part of you to know him? And not only that, but to know him with a dudamos explosive power of his resurrection where he conquered death and he conquered the enemy and he conquered Satan and he conquered the greatest fear every man and woman has on earth, which is of death. We don't, we're far less afraid of losing our home or being in poverty than we are of getting a bad report from the doctor and find that our life here on earth is limited. And I will also know the fellowship, the koinonia, the partnership of his sufferings. Because the Bible says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He suffered persecution. He suffered. I'm in him. I want to live like him. I want to wear his mantle. I want to praise the Lord for being counted worthy. So therefore, I'm going to have fellowship, koinonia, partnership with his sufferings. Why? Because I'm going to be conformed to his death. I'm going to lay my life down as a living sacrifice, yielding all of me to him, just like he gave himself for us. Is it worth it? Yeah. Because if by any means, number seven, I may attain, I may grow into, I may acquire the resurrection from the dead. I may live a non-haphazard, apathetic, not worth much to anybody Christian life, made up of nothing more than a set of moral values that I try to live by, thinking somehow that that pleases him to the nth degree. What pleases him is what he talks about in John 15, that we rest, trust, abide in him. That's all we have to do, rest in him. Yield ourselves to him. Don't cut ourselves off from the Holy Spirit who lives in us and let him produce his fruit in us. And the purpose of that is for the Father's glory. That he's, he's honored and gloried when we produce much fruit because apart from him, we can do nothing. Nothing. When I was growing up, um, some of the famous musicians that I listened to, some of the incredible movie stars like uh, Paul Newman and people like that and uh, guys that would just live in the great life and, and stuff of that nature. One by one, they're all gone. Nobody even thinks about them anymore. I mean, prior to my generation, I mean, some of the greatest movie stars, Clark Gable, man, I don't know who those people are anymore. Can't even see a color picture of them. They're all black and white. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. What did they leave behind? I don't know. Um, not much. They lived their life with all their gusto. They spent it on themselves. And when they died, they went to a Christless eternity. Or if they were saved, they made no, they made no visible or practical movement in the kingdom of God. So therefore, it's their life just lived for them and satisfied them. The joy comes when we give our life away. We give it away. And here's how it works, and I'm going to close with this. Do we know him? I mean, do we really? Do we know him intimately? Do we know him passionately? I want you to think about the person that you know the best. In my situation, be my wife. Now, I live with my wife, and we share things together, 
and we've been partners in one flesh for 42 wonderful years. I know her better than anybody, but she doesn't live in me. I mean, she doesn't. When she's not around, if I call her, I have to call her on the phone, and she never has the phone with her anyway, so I usually don't get her. Um, she does her things, I do my things, she has her life, I live my life, I'm very blessed to have her, we fit together like, like one person, but nevertheless, I still have my own desires, and I can share those with her, and she has those with me, and it's a great marriage, but it's not anything like, like her living in me, and us truly being one, and that's how it is with Christ. He's lived in you ever since you came to faith in him. So the question is, what is your relationship like with him? Do you know him as well as you know your spouse? Do you know him as well as you know your kids? Do you know him as well as you know your buddy, your friend, somebody you work with, or some, you know, somebody you went to high school with? I mean, do you know him that well, or do you know them better? Do you know what his desires are and needs are? Do you know what puts a smile on his face? Do you know what pleases him? And if you do know what pleases him, do you try really hard to do that? I mean, I know what pleases my wife, and so therefore I, I try really hard to, to do those things and put a smile on her face. And my kids, I mean, that's, that's just what life is all about. Do you have that kind of relationship with Christ? Is there somebody else that you know that you would rather spend time with other than Jesus? Well, yeah, I think I'd rather spend time with my kids. Why? Well, I don't know. I just, I like talking to them. Why not Jesus? Well, he didn't talk back. Is that his fault? He wants to. He's always there. We just never give him the time. We just don't have that intimacy. We don't desire it as much as we desire maybe a human relationship. I mean, I remember when Karen and I were dating, I wanted more than anything to win her heart. She was sweet, poly, purebred, preacher's kid. I was not. And so when I hung with her friends and hung with her, man, I was on my best behavior. I, you know, I, didn't do, I, didn't, I didn't even act like me. I acted like I thought maybe she wanted me to act. I acted you know, how I thought I should act. And I didn't want to do anything to offend her. I didn't want anything to hurt her. I didn't want anything to happen to harm this relationship that was budding because it was really important to me. Well, how about our relationship with Christ? We know what hurts him. We know what grieves him. And yet many times we just come to him casually and callously without repenting or even wanting to change the things he's already convicted us about, being satisfied with an arm's length relationship with him, like a six or a seven, because we're so busy building something over here that's not going to last. And, and then we wonder why we don't have that intimacy with him. It's available and it's the greatest thing ever. You love someone more than Jesus? Well, I love my kids. Can't ever turn my kids over to the Lord. Why? He loves them more than you. You didn't die for your kids. You didn't die for anybody. And he did. And he would continue doing that. You don't bear on your body the scars that redeemed the person that you love the most. And yet he does. And when we get closer to him, and experience him, everything changes. Okay, okay. I've heard these sermons, and I know they're true, and what do I do? I mean, what do I do? All right, I will sum it up for you in one verse. It's really this one. 
You must decrease, he must increase. It's really simple. For to me, Paul says to me, and I'm not superimposing this on anybody else. For me, to live, to experience life in its fullest, to, to live in such a way that it has meaning and it has purpose, and I can wake up in the morning excited about what God is going to do. To me, to live is not something I do on my own. To live is. It's not with or because of, empowered by, but to me, to live is Christ. Nothing else but Christ. Christ in the morning, Christ in noontime, Christ in the evening, Christ in all and all. How do I do that? How do I, how do I live in such a way that Christ has total control? It's really simple. It's a matter of physics. Two matters cannot inhabit the same space. It's you or him. It's you and the world or him. It's you and the world and Satan or him. So therefore, if for me to live as Christ, than to die, to pick up my cross and die to him is gain. I win. And again, the context here is talking about his physical death going on to being with the Lord. That is also gain because this world holds nothing for any of us but pain and suffering and temporal pleasures. Temporal pleasures. And he provides eternal Joy, eternal joy. I don't know, I don't know how to express it any different. It's real. It's available to you. I mean, if you'll go an inch, he'll go a mile. But what he's looking for is for you to go an inch, to say no to something, to say yes to him, and he will fill you was so much of him that what you said no to is so meaningless on the other side. Kind of like when a woman gives birth to a child. Immense pain for a short period of time, and then the baby comes. And the first thing they do is they place the baby in the mother's arms, and it's like, oh, look, and you know, the baby's nursing or, or whatever, and it's like, what about the pain? I mean, they're doing a whole bunch of stuff down there, and you're not even aware. Well, maybe you're aware of but I was aware of it. They're holding on to the debate. It didn't matter because look at here. Look what happened. This eclipses everything. And it works exactly the same way with him. If you, will, if you are willing and add, Lord, I don't know how to do this. And every time I do this, I fail. And every time I fail, I feel guilty. If you will ask him to take control, he will do this through you and for you. All he's asking for is your willingness. Willingness. And if so, the blinders will come off and you'll wake up in the morning and you'll see life in a whole new light because you'll see it with the eyes that he gave you to glorify him. Amen? Let me pray.